Here in Deuteronomy 6, we saw this morning in verses 4 to 9, one of the most consequential paragraphs in the life of Israel. We approached verses 4 to 9, looking at a number of inferences along the way. But I want to labor to emphasize how crucial that kind of paragraph is for the Israelites' understanding of what it is to know their God and to receive His commands. He is calling them to love Him. And what verses 10 and following are doing is developing more that idea. And so picking up in verses 10 and following, we see that the Israelites are going to be heading into this land where they're to love the Lord. They're to love the Lord wherever He leads them. They're to love the Lord wherever He has placed them providentially, with whomever they find themselves intermingling in life. What is their foremost call wherever they go? To love the Lord. And with all their heart and all their soul and all their might, and to proclaim the love of God to those around and coming afterward, that they might also know of this great God. Now in verses 10 through 15, we're going to look at a section here about not forgetting the Lord. So we're going to look at these three sections of the passage tonight under different uh, exhortations. The first one, verses 10 to 15, is don't forget the Lord. And then in verses 16 to 19, don't test the Lord. And then in verses 20 to 25, retell the old, old story. These are the ideas. Don't forget the Lord. Don't test the Lord. Retell the old, old story. The Israelites are going to need both warnings and good exhortations and encouragements, and we're no different. Uh, The Israelites need to be warned about what is possible, to really imagine the kind of snares that await them. And because this is a land flowing with milk and honey, it could be very easy for them to imagine, okay, once I'm out of this wilderness, things are going to go really well for us in the land of milk and honey. After all, it is called a land of milk and honey, not a land of thorns and thistles. That's not what Moses said we're going into, right? So then you read in verses 10 and following that when they go into this land, they're going to inherit things that are going to tempt them to be complacent, to be complacent. And that in of itself helps us recognize that in a fallen world, to be surrounded by various blessings can leave us complacent before the Lord and vulnerable. And then in verses 16 to 19, they're going to be reminded of a time of testing, where in a time of testing, they showed themselves unfaithful. And and so you know when we're vulnerable in times of blessings and in times of difficulties. So there you have it. There you have it. You have in verses 10 through 19, them remembering that they in verses 16 and 19 put the Lord to the test. They were unbelieving and murmuring. Things were difficult and they were freaking out. But then they're going into a land in verses 10 to 15 that's going to be so uh, lavish in blessing and the goodness of God so evident that they may grow Numb. They may go expectant as if this is sort of an ordinary life that they're to be entitled to and won't have removed from them, and maybe certain temptations will therefore be in store. We must be warned about following the Lord and exhorted in following the Lord, both in times of great comfort and blessings and also hardships and challenges. Both kinds of things leave us vulnerable in different ways. I think he's showing them tremendous insight into our human condition. That in verses 10 to 15, we're told, don't forget the Lord. Okay, let's think about this heading first. Don't forget the Lord. And when the Lord your God brings you. So this starts a sentence that's really a few verses long. 
And that's always a bit complex when you're trying to follow a, a biblical statement and you finish off a verse and you realize that sentence is still going and then you finish off that next verse and that sentence is still going. It's the sentence that won't quit. And what you read is really verses 10 through 12 is all one sentence. And most of it is an if. A set of, or a win, a win or an if. A set of conditions. The, the, the payday is verse 12 then take care lest you forget the Lord. So you get to the end of the sentence and you realize here's where he's going with this winding sentence. He's getting to a point where he's going to apply it this way, then take care lest you forget the Lord. Now what is it that's going to set them up in a vulnerable situation that they need to take seriously? And the language in verses 10 and 11 lays that out. Here's what God's going to do. He's going to bring you into the land he swore to your fathers. Well, that sounds quite wonderful, actually. God's keeping promises. Who were those fathers? We're told it was Abraham, it was Isaac, it was Jacob. It was promised to give you this land. Well, those are the patriarchs. It goes back to Genesis in our minds. We're remembering those three patriarchs who bore promises and covenant faithfulness of Yahweh. And then we're told when he brings you into the land... We're at the end of verse 10, imagining this land with this language. Great and good cities you did not build. The Israelites have to remember they're going into this land. It is not a blank slate. They're going into this land and there are cities. They did not build these cities. In verse 11, there are homes. Homes full of good things you did not fill. There's cisterns. You need those. You need those for water. Cisterns you didn't dig. Vineyards, olive trees. You didn't plant these. They are going to be receiving what they did not produce or earn. I think the impression we're getting from verses 10 and 11 is the Lord is giving this. They are receiving this land. And in verse 11, when you eat and are full, that's the very end of the verse. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord. That's not an imaginative situation of lack. When you eat and are full. So like you just, you've received. The blessings are just there. And you are so overwhelmed by them. And you're there with homes you didn't build. And cisterns you didn't dig. And so God's so faithful. And then surprise. In verse 12. You have to be careful not to forget the Lord. The Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. The reason they're in that place of inheritance is because they were delivered out of a place of bondage. The bondage in Egypt, the enslavement that was part of their life, that was no more because the Lord had overcome that by His great power, by His redeeming work. He would brought them out in that mighty act of redemption. And they are to remember the Lord. Take care lest you forget the Lord. We could say it another way, remember the Lord. Don't forget the Lord, remember the Lord. One of the reasons this will be a vulnerable situation and that they should not slide into a false sense of security. It's because there's going to be a lot of other people in the land who worship other gods. And even though these Israelites are told to get rid of these idol places, they're warned in Joshua and in Judges that the remaining idol places will prove a snare to them. The Lord knows the drift that can happen in the human heart. And that these are going to be live snares in their midst. That's why he says in verse 13, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. There, there are going to be others around them going after other gods. Other gods being feared. Other gods 
in whose name people are swearing oaths and making promises and commitments. He says, it is only the living God. The Lord your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name swear. It goes back to loyalty, doesn't it? Where's their allegiance going to lie? Well, their allegiance and their loyalty should be to Yahweh, your God, who redeemed you and has brought you into this inheritance. So the reason you're here is because the Lord brought you out. The reason you're receiving what you're receiving is because the Lord has poured out upon you. So if you go after other gods and you go swear in the names of other gods, then you are not only forgetting the Lord, this is idolatrous. And that's not going to go well for you. Idolatry is self-destructive and not only provokes the Lord, it is self-destructive and demeaning to the image bearer because we have not been made to worship what isn't God. He says, you shall not go after other gods in verse 14, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. We've considered that description of God before. We can imagine situations of jealousy that might not seem like a positive thing. But in a relationship of covenant, jealousy really is a, a, a notion that can have a healthy sense to it. And certainly with regard to the Lord, there's no corruption or, or off-baseness about uh, his jealousy. It is instead a rightful sense of we are in covenant together. Going after other gods would be a violation of that covenant. And the Lord would not think small of that. Instead, because he is a righteous God and a holy God and a faithful God, he must be a jealous God or he would hold his own name in low regard. Would he not value worship among the nations to the one who is worthy of all things? Would he have such a low view of his worth? It would not be humble of God and is certainly not a mark of his pride. Instead, this is not a matter of the Lord needing to humble himself and not being jealous, nor is this a matter of God dealing with some sort of megalomaniacal sense of worth. Instead, God is not like man, where in our jealousies and our corruptive uh, motives and actions, we might recognize um, an, an overstating of the case. God is a jealous God in all righteous and good ways. He's a jealous God because he should be, because he's God. And if God has a low regard for his worth, he would not be a God worthy to be worshipped. If God would be in some way approving of and even encouraging of worship of idols that are not God, that cannot hear or see or save and deliver, these other gods of the nations that do of no spiritual benefit to the people, should this not bother a holy God, a righteous God? If it wouldn't, you would be concerned about his righteousness. How holy could this God be? Once you start thinking through what it would mean if God were not a jealous God, it would, we would end up thinking of a God not worthy of worship and adoration and allegiance at all. So the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. And don't go after other gods in verses 14 and 15, because at the end of verse 15, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. It's a very strong statement. Destroy you off the face of the earth sounds like judgment. It sounds like not only will idolatry not be in your soul's best interest, it is a road to judgment. A divine judgment upon idolatry. The anger of the Lord that is roused and provoked by the idolatrous actions of the nations. These Israelites are to go, and under this first big heading, not forget the Lord. Or we've said it, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. And then in verses 16 to 19, look at the second heading, um, or this idea, don't test the Lord. 
Don't forget the Lord. Don't test the Lord. Verses 16 and 19. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. The reason this is connected to what we've just noticed is if they go after other gods, this would be testing the Lord. If they violated his commands and they provoked God and kindled his anger, this would be testing the Lord. So don't forget the Lord. Don't test the Lord. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Massa is an episode in the book of Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, the Israelites had been delivered from Egypt. They are not even at Sinai yet, which doesn't happen until Exodus 19. So here they are between Egypt and Mount Sinai, the people in route. And in Exodus 17, there was no water for the people to drink. And we know that the common reaction reported over and over again when the people see something or don't see something they need, it tells us in verse 2, they quarreled. They quarreled with Moses. They said, give us water to drink. And he said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? That's Moses' response to them. Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses. And he said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses cried to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? That's just literally what it says. What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. In Exodus 17, that situation at Massa was called by Moses a testing of the Lord because despite the goodness of the Lord and the power of the Lord, they were willing to call that into question, to act as if it wasn't true. And that is a kind of testing of the Lord. We must consider what it means to test the Lord. One writer puts it this way, to test God is to make upon him demands or requirements inappropriate to his nature or character or the circumstances. Okay, that's one way to get at it. Uh, Another writer says that testing the Lord is trying to get him to prove he's trustworthy. As if God hasn't demonstrated his faithfulness. As if his promises can't be counted on. Instead, we would speak and act in a way that are trying to get him to prove something he has no need to demonstrate. We could also think of it this way. Testing the Lord involves pushing the boundaries of what's appropriate in the covenant relationship. Acting in such a way that calls into question his goodness calls into question his faithfulness of provision or or questioning the seriousness of sin's consequences. I think you could say that back in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan said to Eve, has the Lord really said that that in of itself is a kind of testing of the Lord? You will not surely die, the evil one said to her. Examples of of putting into the mind of an image bearer that maybe God's word isn't going to be exactly the way he said it will be. Openly doubting the Lord, refusing to trust the Lord. These are all ideas of what it means to test him in some way. As if his character is impeachable, as if his ways are not consistent. Acting in a way to question the goodness of his character, the faithfulness of his provision, or the seriousness of sin's consequences. Parents know what it is for children to test them. So you're in a situation, you know, could have happened today in fact. Uh, You're in a situation with your children, some kind of instruction or expectation is upon them, and they are not taking that seriously. And you might have looked at them and said, don't test me, okay, don't test me. Every parent's probably said that at some point. Don't test me, because in that moment, in that moment, something's being pushed, Something's being tried. Let's see where the boundaries are. Let's see if mom and dad are really serious. It's those ideas of testing that all are part of this notion in verse 16. 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. They are not to test the Lord. Instead, in verse 17, they're to diligently keep the commandments of the Lord. Uh, so they might, they might not know a lot of things, right? They might not know where this water is going to come from when they're thirsty. They might not know where the bread is going to come from when they're hungry. What do they know? Well, they know what God has revealed. And they can be freaking out based on what they don't know and can't control and not thinking on what God has made known and promised. They should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord. Now, if you're doing something diligently, there's a lot of deliberation there, isn't it? You are purposefully and focusing on this, whatever is before you, here it is keeping the commands of the Lord and his testimonies and his statutes, which he's commanded you. I could put it this way. They're, they're to commit themselves to a life of obedience. It's like verse five, loving the Lord with your heart, soul, and might. Diligently keeping the commandments of the Lord is loving God with all that you are. It's a whole life response. And then verse 18, I think, is giving you what would result. If we're diligently keeping the commandments of the Lord, if we're, if we're trying to respond with our whole lives with love for God, in verse 18, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you. Thinking on his commandments, seeking to orient our lives by what is wise and good, as God has revealed what is right and good, then that means we will be doing what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. And if it is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that's the only sight that matters. If God has spoken what is good and what is right, that is the standard. You shall do what is right and good, that it may go well with you. Uh, so it is really in your best interest not to be an idolater. And it is in your best interest to pursue the Lord and trust his wisdom. That it may go well with you and it may go, that you may go in and take possession of the good land the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Don't you believe that where God is leading you is good? And the Israelites weren't so sure. In Numbers 13 and 14, the spies came back with a majority report and they said it looks pretty terrifying in there. And then they were ready to go back to Egypt to a place of enslavement. And you might be tempted from time to time to look at your current life following Christ and wonder, is it really good where God is leading me? Maybe it was better where I came from. But friend, Egypt is never better. And the land of promise is always something you can count on the Lord faithfully delivering. You can trust him. In fact, in verse 18, you shall do what's right and good in his sight, that it may go well with you, that you take possession of this good land he swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies. Verse 19 explains how you take possession of the land. He swore to give this land, and you're to go in and take possession by, in verse 19, thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. They don't see how they're going to do this. They don't see it because, according to the spies, the people are taller the cities look pretty intimidating. And that throughout the land, all these military fortresses surely cluster together in an overwhelming sense where the Israelites would say, I don't see how we can do this. And that is the whole point. They, in their own power, cannot. It is in a situation where they simply must realize by their own power, they cannot do it. And that is precisely the point. That when the victory takes place and when the faithfulness is demonstrated, it is God to be glorified all along. They thrust out their enemies as God has promised. The strength and the power will come from him. The wisdom and the insight will come from him. The leadership will come from his hand and through Joshua, his appointed servant. Under the second heading then we see, don't test the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. Don't test the Lord. 
And then in verses 20 to 25, retell the old, old story. What's helpful about chapter 6 is when we looked at this morning's passage and tonight's passage, there is a, a bookending, a bookending of a, a theme on those that are coming after us. When your son asks you in time, that's what verse 20 is talking about. Well, earlier in chapter 6, didn't we think about verse uh, 7, teaching the commands diligently to the children, talking of them when you sit in the house, and on and on? Well, here at the end of the chapter, he's returning to that theme. Retell the old, old story. What I have in mind in verse 20 is the question and answer format that is so helpful with young children. Young children have a lot of questions. And in verse 20, your son, he says, is going to ask you in the time to come. So at some point, they're going to think to themselves, why are we doing this? Why are these commandments important? Why do mom and dad have them on the doorposts, if taken literally? Uh, Why are we talking about them when we lie down and when we rise up? What's going on? And in verse 20, when your son asks you, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, and then what we read is a recollection of the Exodus. There's the uh, situation in verse 21 of being slaves and then brought out by God's hand. In verse 22, God signs and wonders, probably including not just the plagues, but the parting of the Red Sea. And then in verse 23, God brought us out of there and brought us to give us this land that he swore to our fathers. So they're, they're retelling this story. And they don't just do it once. They don't just do it once. They need to tell that story because here's the truth of it, friends. All of us are living inside of a story. A story that we are telling ourselves that are making sense of our life. Everybody you meet is living in light of some story. Some meaning they pursue. Some idea of where things came from. Some sense of what's beyond this life, if anything. There's some, some set of components of a worldview that have been formed and may be formed upon unworthy, unworthy and unreliable authorities. Maybe books and movies and cultural mores and ideas around them. Maybe there's things they've pulled from uh, conversations growing up over time. Maybe just their own instincts about how, well, I would feel much more comfortable if things are operating this way. And, and here we realize These young children, like these adults, are living inside of a story, and the true story is being told of the God of heaven and earth who's made himself known to this people, who's delivered them from bondage, taking them into a promised land, and they need to tell themselves the true story so that their life will be seen in light of it. It's a perspective, and these young children will be told a lot of things they can't fully understand. Haven't you ever had a young child ask you a question and you think to yourself, there's an answer to this, but I don't think they're going to get it. You know, you try to think to yourself, how can I put this in such a way? I remember uh, the other day um, we were, were, uh, Grayson was saying uh, something about uh, Jesus. There's this story, of course, where Jesus is in the bottom of the boat sleeping. And Grayson says to me, but I thought Jesus was God. Why is he sleeping? And I'm like, well, welcome to the doctrine of Christology. I didn't say that to him. That's what I was thinking. And so you just think about truly divine and truly man. It's like you see there's one person, two natures, and you just think he's got a good question. How is it that Jesus, who is God, right, Dad? You say he's God. How is he asleep in the bottom of the boat? And and you realize not only are there great answers to this, the, the point of Christian growth and discipleship will involve growing into those answers. I've sometimes described it as children who need to be clothed in doctrinal truths that right now don't quite fit them as it will. 
And uh, you just imagine uh, a child who is shivering and needs to be uh, brought warm. And you might think, well, all that I have here to, to cover their questions, it's a little too big for them. Okay, better to leave them clothed than unclothed in that sense. And over time, you know what? They'll grow into it. They, they will not remain where they are in their thinking and in their uh, age. They will grow and learn to imagine and think abstractly and be able to process what they can't at an earlier age. But you don't not cover them. You, you, in other words, you cover them with doctrinal truth and they continue to grow into it over time. This is a question that's being imagined here from a son to a father. Why? What's going on with these statutes? Why do we do all these testimonies? And they begin to retell the old, old story. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And right there, it's on the edge of the seat, right? Oh my goodness, this was our ancestry. We were enslaved in the land of Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. There's nothing dull about the old, old story. It is the drama of the ages. This is the exciting delivering act of his rescuing power. His mighty hand was at work and he showed signs and wonders and great and grievous were these signs against Egypt, against Pharaoh. And you read about the plagues and the plundering of Egyptian gods and people. Before our eyes, God did these things in verse 22. And he brought us out of there in verse 23. That he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. I think the retelling of this story is helpful to realize the Israelites were to understand themselves as an Exodus people. That is their central identity. Now, they might have thought to themselves, well, we, we grew up uh, in Egypt. Well, many of us, we had generations of enslavement. And then we were going into the land of Canaan. And there were many years and decades of uh, wilderness wandering in between. So no matter where they were, and no matter who else they came in contact with, and whatever else was worshipped around them, who are they most fundamentally? What is their core identity? They are an Exodus people. That's who they are. They are a redeemed people. And as a redeemed people, they should understand their lives in light of that profound event that God had mercifully wrought in their lives. And then in verse 24, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. See, he's getting to the answer for his son. He said, why did the Lord, why are we doing these statutes? Well, you ultimately get to the fact that God told us to do these statutes. So because we, we have revelation from the Lord, he's commanded us to do them. So if God has said that we should prioritize this, that these are things that should direct us, well, then we should do that because he's God. But what kind of people are we under this God? Well, we are the redeemed people. Those who have brought, been brought out and then being given this land he swore to give to our fathers. And therefore he's commanded us to do these statutes as the God of the Exodus. And it's so that we will fear the Lord our God for our good always. He, he, wants, he wants the children to understand, just as we need to grasp and re-grasp and re-grasp as adults. Everything God has commanded is for our good. It is sin's promises and the snares and temptations around that will steal and kill and destroy in the plots of the evil one. God's commands are different. Everything that he has commanded us to do, he's commanded we do all these statutes for the fear or reverence of God. It's that idea of honor and reverence for God. That's what it means, the fear of the Lord there. It's the, the Proverbs kind of fear of the Lord. That the honor of God, the reverence of God, and for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. The final verse seems to mean when we respond to 
these statutes we're commanded to follow. When we fear God and when we are doing what is for our good always from the Lord, it will be righteousness for us. The Old Testament commentators debate on whether this is like a legal righteousness counted to us or if this is referring to the moral obedience of God's people. I'm inclined in the latter direction here that this is probably what is describing the life of someone who is already trusting God, right in God's sight, and seeking to uh, live in a way that honors God. It is considered righteousness. In other words, they are both someone committed to righteousness and doing what is right before God. That's what righteousness is. It is the act of doing what is right and the pursuit of what honors and conforms to the character of God. When we are commanded to do these statutes in verse 24, to fear the Lord and for our good, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment. Because I think the emphasis here is on um, if we are a people who are trusting the Lord and are like Abraham, believing his promises, and uh, therefore are right in God's sight or justified, then what this means is responding with our lives to the truth of God is doing and pursuing righteousness. That we be a people not only right before God in a forensic or legal way, justified by grace and through faith, but that truly we see that we are responsible, a a, a duty to follow the Lord, responsible for the acts of righteousness laid out in His Word. If we are careful to do all this commandment, Do you see what he's pressing upon them? Be be a people who care about what I've said. Have I made known particular wisdom and commands for your life? Attend to those. Like don't lightly hold them in your grasp to just let them fall through your fingers like sand on the floor. Instead, grasp upon the words of God. Be attentive and careful to do his commands. And I think this will require a growing familiarity with his word. It matters that we gather corporately to hear the word of God taught. It matters that even apart from this corporate gathering on the Lord's Day, we are thinking about and reading the Word of God for our good. Even throughout the Promised Land, there would be priests in various strategic locations to instruct the people of God between feast times and other times as well. So that what we would have in dominating the people's lives is an instruction of uh, the people for the name and commands of God for their good always. If we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now something important to notice about Deuteronomy 6 when you read the New Testament is that uh, not only can we apply these notions of fearing the Lord and serving the Lord and trusting the Lord and not forgetting the Lord and not testing the Lord. We can, we can see the relevance of all of those ideas for our new covenant pursuit of Christ. But this chapter was also important in the life of Jesus. And I want you to turn with me uh, for the remainder of our minutes together to Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, there is this setting where Jesus' temptations are unfolding in a wilderness area. In Matthew chapter 4, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights and he's hungry. And the tempter comes and there's this whole first temptation, which doesn't tie to Deuteronomy 6. But the second temptation... And the third temptation, do. Look in the second temptation beginning in verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now this is the devil's temptation. It's even couched in Old Testament language. 
Turns out the devil tries to wield scripture to do what Jesus is going to push back against in verse 7. Jesus says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, how does Jesus know that particular verse? Jesus knows Deuteronomy. And this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. The helpfulness of this context is in Deuteronomy 6, the people of Israel, according to Moses' recollection, needed to remember that, hey, at Massa, you put the Lord your God to the test. You were thirsty. You were hungry at different other locations. And in these times of lack, you tested the Lord instead of trusting His provision. Well, here's another wilderness scene. After another period of 40 that's in view, where you have 40 years of Israelite wandering and testing of the Lord and murmuring and disobedience, you have 40 days of fasting, a wilderness scene, and Christ Jesus, who is a true Israel. Think of Jesus as representative of the nation of Israel. When, when we read this language about um, the quotation from Deuteronomy 6, the initial context was Israel failing in the wilderness. And a question from a reader ought to be, well, will Jesus be like that Israel? Will he also in the wilderness be tested and fail? He will not fail. Instead, what we see is Jesus is a true and greater Israel in the wilderness, faithful, quoting the word of God, trusting the provision of the Father. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16. And then we see in the third temptation in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. Jesus will again quote from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Language drawn from Deuteronomy 6.13. So Deuteronomy 6.16 and Deuteronomy 6.13 are the second and third it is written responses from Jesus to the devil. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only him shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Faced with these lies, what Jesus speaks is the truthfulness of the word of God. The word of God written upon the heart. In Deuteronomy 6... The goal in Deuteronomy 6, 5 and following is have the word of God, these commands on your heart. You know who demonstrated that and embodied that perfectly? The Lord Jesus. Right in his heart, the word of God, loving the truth of God. And from his lips, what God has promised and also the warnings of God. Jesus would not deviate. He would not go from the, to the right or to the left from the way of God's wisdom. Instead, he would be the true and greater Israel, faithful in all ways, where in Israel's background and story, they compromised, and they murmured and complained, and they doubted, and they rejected. Jesus is different. We need one like Jesus. We need someone who is a true and greater Israel, faithful, and who could do this work representing sinners. That he could live the life we need to live, but cannot in our own sin. He needs to die the death that we had deserved, but instead would die in our place as a faithful substitute. We could look at Matthew 4 as Jesus' temptations, cluing us into Israel's background, so in Jesus, seeing Jesus here as a representative Israelite, a greater Israel. And in that sense, this is part of his substitutionary life being lived for us. 
We are those also tempted. We are those also facing the snares of this life. We must also be those who know the truth of God and expose the lies of sin. But we can take comfort in Jesus' knowledge of and an application of Scripture. Because Jesus is the unwavering, unfaltering Son of God. Israel is God's Son. In Exodus 4.22, You are my firstborn son. Tell Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go. Jesus is the Son of God who goes into the wilderness, faces temptation, and doesn't repeat Israel's mistake. We see the remarkable faithfulness of our mighty Savior. And so we want to love Him with our heart, soul, and might. We want to do His commands. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, He says in John chapter 14. When we want to fear the Lord and want to look at His commands and see all that Jesus has for His people, we know it is for our good always. He is totally trustworthy and life is in store for us. It is true, my friends, that where we are being led is greater than what we have been delivered from. We need not turn back and we need not wonder if Egypt was actually better. Sin and its enslavement was never better. Instead, the land God has for us, the promised land in the Old Testament being a type of that, a foreshadowing of that, a new heavens and a new earth will exceed our imaginations. We have by faith then to trust the Lord and to receive His commands that we might walk faithfully. And that when we face temptations, we can remember the one with whom we are united by the Holy Spirit and know that His strength is with us and that our best days are not things that make us more lovable to God and our worst days don't make us less. In fact, in Christ, we are those eternally loved by His unchanging purpose and grace. And now... Freed from having to work our way and trying to find his approval, we receive in Christ a standing that we did not deserve. Like a house we didn't build and a vineyard we didn't plant and a cistern we didn't dig. When we ponder the blessings of Christ, it is mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace. Don't forget the Lord. Don't test the Lord. Retell the old, old story. When your children say... Well, why is it that we go to Cosmosdale Baptist Church? And why is it that we think about Sunday school classes? And why do we go through these things at home? And why are we praying in meals? And why, are we, why do we do these things? Looking for meaning and understanding. Well, we don't then say, well, you see, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. You know, our story's a little bit different. It doesn't, that's reaching way back. But it, 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 you could start there because they are our spiritual ancestors, right? But you, you could also say, the reason we do this is because the Lord who loved the world sent His beloved Son. We were sinners. Enslaved not just to Pharaoh in some physical sense and political sense, but in bondage to my guilt and shame and sin, I could not free myself. So God did a work I couldn't do. He delivered me. He raised me up from darkness to light and gave me life. And then when we explain what happens to us, it's retelling that old story of a cross that was raised up, of a tomb that was empty, of a son who ascended in glory and reign. And we give those answers so that when we are learning and responding, we're responding to grace. We're whole life responding in love toward the God who has redeemed. We understand that at core, this is who we are. We most fundamentally are the redeemed people of God. That is what is most deeply true of us. Let's pray.